friends, fans, and colleagues. Um, I'm your hostess, Karen Tate, uh, on this special Monday. And um, the music you were listening to was uh, from Reclaiming's Campfire Chants, and that's one of my favorites uh, called Weave and Spin. And uh, they're really activist chants. You know, they're designed to uh, sing and chant and spiral dance and raise energy uh, toward um, uh, the change you want to see in the world to your um, social justice activism, so to speak. Uh, so I hope you enjoy that. Um, I'm going to be bringing you more of their uh, campfire uh, songs um, as I do these uh, special offerings uh, from my book, Goddess Calling. And um, I hope you enjoy them. They're really, uh, they're really pretty good. They, uh, they kind of get my juices flowing, and, um, you know, maybe um, uh, they'll have the same effect on you. <clears throat> so um, thank you for tuning in with me today. Um, as I said at the beginning of the year in January, I was going to bring you something special besides just my regular uh, interviews of folks, uh, you know, every Wednesday. Uh, I thought I would uh, dip into my Goddess Calling book um, and uh, share with you the inspirational messages and meditations uh, that are in there. Uh, they uh, very gently and loosely follow uh, the wheel of the year, so to speak. And, uh, you know, the book uh, got good reviews from people like Jean Houston, Barbara Walker, Z Budapest. Um, and um, the subtitle is uh, uh, Inspirational Messages and Meditations of Sacred Feminine Liberation Theology. Now, I know that's a mouthful, but uh, what it really means is goddess values uh, sets us free of patriarchy and the dominator-oppressor culture that uh, we live in, and we're trying very hard hard uh, to uh, shake off and find uh, new ways of being in the world, uh, new ways of um, uh, enhancing our lives, uh, new ways of finding our authentic selves. And along those lines, um, I think um, the meditation and inspirational reading I have for you today um, is in sync with that. Um, I'm going to be uh, sharing my uh, message on dreaming and inspiration. And then afterwards, uh, the meditation is going to be based on uh, the sleeping goddess of Malta. Yes, yes, indeed. And uh, many of you may know the sleeping goddess of Malta. Maybe some of you don't. Uh, you know, do a Google search after, uh, you know, after today's show, if you like. A very interesting artifact that was found in Malta. Uh, we're not 100% uh, sure uh, the meaning. Uh, maybe she was a representative of a priestess. Uh, uh, maybe uh, where she was found in the hypogeum, um, you know, said that they used the hypogeum for uh, dream therapy, dream healing, dream incubation. Uh, we don't know for sure. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a powerful, powerful artifact. And... Um, uh, and, and she's sort of the focus of the meditation today. Now, uh, to get ready for today, um, I found on my bookshelf uh, a book that had been sitting there for a while, and I didn't have time to get you, but I'm so glad I did. Uh, it's called The Maltese Dreamer by Catherine Veritas. Um, it's a novel. 
uh, about a healer's apprentice and a Phoenician warrior and sacred temples on Malta. And it's kind of a, a woman coming into her own power as a healer and a, uh, a seer. And uh, it was a lot of fun to read that uh, in anticipation of today's show. And I highly recommend it, The, the Maltese Dreamer. It was a fun read, a quick read. Uh, it's one of those ones that maybe you want to you know, read by the pool or take on vacation or um, you know, just to read for the fun of it. Uh, it, was, it was really great. All right, so... Oh, and one other thing, um, at the end of today's show, um, I'm going to be talking about women's orgasms. Uh, yes, indeed, this topic uh, came up among, among me and some uh, women friends and because there was an article uh, posted online, Why Do Women Have Orgasms? And uh, it was interesting, uh, you know, what the scientists said about it. Uh, and then what some of we women uh, came up with um, about uh, women's orgasms and uh, maybe why um, they're marginalized and um, you know maybe they're not talked about um, as much in our society as they should be. You know we certainly uh, you know we have a million commercials about the little blue pill. Um, you know we're so worried about men's orgasms, but. Um, Women's orgasms sort of get the uh, short shrift, I think, is maybe the way they say it. So anyway, I'm going to share with you some information about women's orgasms uh, after we do today's meditation. All right, so uh, sit back, get comfortable, uh, maybe grab a cup of tea, glass of wine if it's not too early where you are, <laughs> or even if it is, you know, who cares? Um, you know, we're going to relax and cut loose a little bit today and uh, tap into our, our right brain self. Okay? All right, so uh, from Goddess Calling, here is uh, Dreaming and Inspiration. The tiny Maltese islands located just south of Sicily are home to the oldest megalithic freestanding stone structures that exist on Earth today and designated UNESCO World Heritage Sites. These intriguing structures, many of which resemble the shape of a woman's body, predate the Egyptian pyramids and Stonehenge. One famous artifact found in these ancient sacred sites, the Sleeping Lady, is thought to be representative of the goddess religion practiced on the islands. Discovered in the enormous underground labyrinth-like structure called the Hal Cephalini Hypogeum, which might have once been a sanctuary and later a necropolis, the Sleeping Lady is as much of an enigma as the location in which she was found. Because of amateur and shoddy archaeological practices being employed at the time, the Sleeping Lady was found. Definitive scientific evidence is lacking about the exact nature and purpose of both the Sleeping Lady and the Hypogeum, but many theories abound. Having visited several of these women-shaped temples, as well as the underground hypogeum, I can personally attest to the sacred energetic that still exists among the ancient stone structures, which seem to activate an intuitive remembering. This is particularly true within the womb-like hypogeum built in the fourth millennia and composed of three underground stories. One is flooded with emotions, being within this incredible holy site, particularly when the ethereal echoes of sound begin to reverberate within the space. 
While some believe the hypogeum was used as a tomb or to practice the chthonic mysteries of goddess, the suggestion of the pose of the sleeping lady leads many to believe this was a sacred place used for the ancient healing art of dream incubation. You see her statue, uh, she's actually a very robust woman uh, lying on a couch. That's what the artifact looks like. Um, this was an early healing modality. Um, yes, dream incubation. Um, let me just go back and reread that sentence, please. While some believe the hypogeum was used as a tomb or to practice the chthonic mysteries of goddess, the suggestion of the pose of the sleeping lady leads many to believe this was a sacred place used for the ancient healing art of dream incubation. This was an early healing modality where the divine would intercede and lend the guidance or inspiration while the subject was asleep. The sleeping lady of Malta found within the hypogeum was hardly the only example of ancient mortal and divine interaction. That inner voice, that divine guidance, those whispers that inspire us to act or create entered the psyche of our ancestors in various ways. In ancient times, these messages arrived in a dream via a disembodied voice or in a vision. In the Old and New Testament, these dreams of divine self-disclosure were called the visions of the night. Physical appearances or manifestations of a deity were events of theophany or an epiphany. Ideas of divine guidance or revelation might also be called epiphanies. In writing to their congregations, we have evidence of apostles who have had visions of goddess while they were awake. In Greece, Asclepios and Hygieia, god and goddess of healing, were seen in visionary dreams by those who came to healing temples for treatment using the aforementioned ancient healing art of dream incubation. After fasting and purification rites, the sick would sleep in the temple overnight in hope of receiving divine guidance to cure what ailed them. Dream incubation was also practiced in sacred temples by the Chinese. Native Americans went on dream quests where they would go out into the wilderness, fast and pray as a rite of passage, and in doing so, hopefully receive divine guidance. The ancient Egyptians also believed through the power of dreams they might receive messages from their many gods and goddesses. The dream time is an integral component of the culture of the Australian Aboriginal tribes who believe the connection between the physical world and the spiritual consciousness is reached during dreaming. These dreams shed light on their own inner landscape as well as inform about ancestors, history, fate, and culture, and the past, present, and future, sometimes simultaneously. With the onset of science and our disconnection with nature, less and less faith and belief has been put in such methods. Today, occurrences of divine dreams and visions might be seen as unimportant and silly. They could be viewed as flights of fancy, a neurosis, a hallucination, or as wish-fulfilling. And with some patriarchal religions rarely encouraging this personally empowered direct link to the divine source or the divine knowledge of gnosis, such methods might at best be discouraged or doubted or at worst feared and interpreted as evil. It has been well documented, documented what obstacles must be overcome before an apparition is accepted as real by the Vatican. 
Could it be too many of us have stopped believing in dreams and visions? Perhaps we may have consequently severed or weakened that vital link to our God S self or that gnosis that lies buried within. Many people do not attempt to remember their dreams or give any credence to these glimpses we're given. Could we have gotten too sophisticated and big for our britches? Might our ancestors in a simpler time have been more in touch with the divine? In more contemporary times, the sleeping prophet Edgar Cayce was famous the world over for his dream interpretations. He once said, quote, Dreams, visions, impressions to the entity in the normal sleeping state are the presentations of the experiences necessary for development if the entity would apply them in the physical life. These may be taken as warnings, as advice, as conditions to be met, conditions to be viewed in a way and manner as lessons, as truths, as they are presented in the various ways and manners, unquote. Casey believed the information he received in these dreams was from two sources, the subconscious mind of the individual for whom he was given a reading and the etheric source of information called the Akashic Records, a sort of universal database for every thought, word, or deed that's transpired in the past, present, and future. On the other hand, Sigmund Freud theorized that dreams were a reflection of human desires and were prompted by external stimuli. He and Carl Jung believed dreams were the interaction between the unconscious and the conscious. Psychologist Joe Griffin believed dreams were metaphorical translations of waking expectations not acted upon during the day to quell their arousal. He believed dreaming deactivated the emotional arousal, freeing the brain to be fresh each day, sort of like clearing one's palate between taste tests. Carl Sagan considered dreams neurological, neurological waste products with little subjective significance or meaning. However, he believed REM sleep served an important survival function and that being deprived of this state more than five days can cause hallucinations. Many psychologists believe dreams can help humans understand their subconscious thought processes in an attempt to overcome psychological difficulties. Contemporary researchers in the fields of dream work and parapsychology are once again using dream incubation techniques as they revive the ancient healing practice. There is no definitive answer on dreams, whether they might be divinely inspired or not, if they can aid in predicting the future or healing the sick, or if they give insight into our own psyches or provide a direct connection to the source. Perhaps the best approach is not to question too critically this source of creativity, inspiration, vision, and imagination, or any safe means that allows for personal growth and illumination. We can look to dreams for insight and contemplate the messages, yet never relinquish our free will to make our own decisions without turning off the flow from the spigot that is the dream. Good advice comes from Carol Coleman when writing about Yi, that's Y-H-I, the goddess of light in creation. Carol Coleman says, quote, To bring life to the myriad of future creations waiting within, we must first acknowledge their absolute existence and believe that we can make them emerge through our own efforts. 
Remember, there is magical possibility in every, every crevice of the cave. It only waits for our light to release it. If we ponder the gifts of our ancestors and honor the blessings we have now, the internal and external landscape of our world will be lush with life, unquote. Now, interesting uh, thing I want to share, um, you know, two sort of dream things that might be uh, of interest. Um, I was uh, watching something on television that talked about uh, the vibrations that exist at sacred sites like Newgrange, Stonehenge, the Hypogeum. And um, uh, these experts uh, were saying that uh, at these sacred sites they often uh, have a vibration at 110 hertz. So um, I wanted to hear what 110 hertz sounded like, what it felt like. So um, I went to YouTube and I, uh, I pulled up some, um, you know, some videos on uh, people sharing 110 hertz. And uh, one of them particularly was great. Uh, it was singing bowls that were toned at 110 hertz. I really like that one. Anyway, um, I listened maybe 20, 30, 40 minutes. I can't remember. I listened to it uh, by itself for a while. I listened to it in the background while I did some other stuff on the computer. And I have to say, that night I had incredibly vivid dreams. I actually saw my grandfather and grandmother who had passed away a number of years ago. I had never seen them in a dream before that I can remember. And there they were standing in the doorway of my bedroom. Uh, and they spoke to me and said, we just came to see how you and Roy are doing. Uh, you know, I can't tell you uh, how that made me feel. It felt so special. And I, I felt like I also, um, while I didn't hear it come from their, from their mouths, um, I, I also had this very strong feeling, intuitive feeling, that they were there watching over us. And, you know, we could uh, be confident of that. Um, yeah, yeah, pretty incredible dream. And, um, you know, another powerful dream I had one night was uh, uh, about my, uh, you know, my, my, my beloved uh, cat, Zena. We had her for 20 years, and uh, she had uh, kidney problems, as so many cats do. And um, the night she passed away, I cried myself to sleep. Uh, but I saw her in a dream. And um, when I saw her, she was her young, playful self doing some of the things she usually used to do when she was a kitten. And um, what was so powerful uh, also about the dream, not just seeing Zena that night uh, in my dream, but um, my mother, my deceased mother, also came to me and told me she was going to take care of Zena. And I don't want to go into the whole dream uh, right now, but I have to just say that dream inspired such healing and forgiveness. Uh, there's a long story there, but take my word for it. Um, you know, dreams, dreams, if you don't already know, uh, they can be so powerful, so insightful, so filled uh, with inspiration, healing, forgiveness, um, so many things that help us uh, on our journey in life. 
So anyway, um, we're going to go ahead and go to the um, Sleeping Goddess of Malta meditation, which is also in the Goddess Calling book. And afterwards, uh, we're going to talk about female orgasms, as I promised. Uh, so uh, please do uh, get comfortable now because we are going to start the meditation. And please don't listen to this if you're driving in a car or doing something like that where you need to uh, have your full attention for your safety. Uh, only do this, uh, listen to this when you're um, home and it's quiet and you can relax and um, uh, you know there are no issues of safety that we have to be concerned about. So please uh, make yourself comfortable. Focus your attention on your third eye. Or use whatever techniques work for you. But I'm going to just suggest a few little things here if, um, if they might be helpful. So you want to start to breathe in and out. Breathe in and out. At your pace, be mindful of your breath. Let all the other distractions go. Your focus should be on your breath, in and out, in and out. Let the distractions of the mundane world just drop away. You know, if they creep in, just say, okay, I see you, I'm, but um, go away now. <laughs> uh, they're not important now. Prepare yourself uh, for a sacred journey. Again, breathing in and out. In and out. Allow, allow, allow peace and serenity to drop over you like a veil. So you have finally arrived in Malta. You have come here to continue your quest to seek out life's mysteries and what they hold in store for you. No grand cathedral or elaborate structure holds the keys for you this journey. Instead, you choose to explore these small islands hardly discernible on a map. No matter, though, for as long as you can remember, you have been drawn to make this pilgrimage. Now here, the hair on back of your neck is standing tall, and you can barely contain the rush of adrenaline shooting through your limbs. The ancient stone temples, shaped in the form of mother and daughter, have been unceasingly calling to you. Now, as you actually stand on the sacred landscape, you hear their call ever more loudly as their voices blend and call out like sirens of old. Lure, heard only in your heart and mind, conjures vague memories of a time long past when you may have been a priestess here in a past life. Perhaps you once performed sacred ritual within the womb of these structures of the sacred feminine, teaching about the mysteries which seem just beyond your grasp in this life. Yet the connection between you and these oldest standing temples is still discernible. Now that you are actually here, that sacred cord connecting you and this place pulses with a new vibrancy, even if the images of the past had been but hazy blurs in your deepest dreams. 
You have felt driven and yearned to experience once again the intimate darkness and energy within the womb of the mother known as the hypogeum. It is here the sleeping goddess of Malta was found and you suspect it is her voice that has been calling to your subconscious mind. Having left the impeccably clean cobblestone streets with row upon row of whitewashed stucco houses, each adorned with their unique and ornate door knockers, you are finally here once again. You hesitate for a moment and take a deep breath in contemplation before entering within this much-anticipated and long-awaited underground space because you understand the profound significance. You are about to cross the threshold between mundane and sacred, past and present, conscious and subconscious, and enter within the holy body of Gaia, or Mother Earth. Casting aside any anxiety, you are unable to wait any longer, and you step into another world. Inside, walking in the dim light, you can see the walls surrounding you, and you remember just beyond and below are sacred chambers that hold a memory of a time past that is yet to blossom again and to its full potential. You relax in the cool, peaceful stillness, and suddenly you have the sensation that you are an embryo gestating within a living womb Your life and all its possibilities are still before you. As you open your mouth to give voice to your bliss, you are startled to hear its tone within the sacred labyrinthine chamber. You hardly recognize the magical qualities of your voice's sweet song. Barely having comprehended this magical delight, you suddenly are distracted by a mist that appears from the darkness of a recessed niche within the chamber. As you watch in awe, the mist takes the shape of the sleeping goddess upon her altar. Her body seems to expand and contract as she lies in silent slumber. As you stand there mesmerized, you notice her form is shimmering with a silver hue that seems to transmit thought. Wide-eyed and amazed, you realize she is communicating with you to help and guide you. As your minds touch, you recognize her and know with certainty it has been her trying to reach you through your dream state. With every breath, she instructs you to go deeply within yourself to that vast, limitless container residing at your core. She wants you to reflect upon the ideas and vision that live there and to acknowledge that which inspires you. You must have faith in your ideas and aspirations. She assures you that despite this time of uncertainty, when your life path may not be clear, you must trust in your divine guidance and in your gifts. You recognize now when you hear her calling or see the sleeping goddess, you are being reminded you have been going astray and you're out of sync with your destiny and true purpose. 
seeing her as a sign to listen to the guidance of your dreams. You are to seek your muse, seek guideposts, or inner healing by allowing yourself to hear the revelations born in the knowledge that incubates in your deepest self. Listen and trust your divinity within. Be willing to hear your own intuitive voice. Take a moment. Take a moment and listen. Having come so far to make this journey, you now know that when you feel lost or empty, you can always return here in your mind. Just breathe deeply and go within to the womb of the hypogeum for a refill or to reconnect and hear the ancient voices of wisdom emanating there. Allow the shimmering silver radiance of the sleeping goddess to envelop you and help you find your way. As you exit the hypogeum, put your hands together in a gesture of prayer. Bow your head in thanks to the sleeping goddess for her awakening you to your dreams. When you are ready, open your eyes. Shake your hands, make circles with your feet, speak your name out loud, and return to the sacred space where you started. So um, what you might want to do is um, keep this meditation somewhere uh, where you can refer back to it if you like. Uh, you can also get Goddess Calling and uh, read the meditation and, you know, record it yourself, you know, at your own pace. Uh, maybe you even want to change some of the words, um, you know, if there's certain triggers that um, help you uh, on a guided journey. Uh, make it your own. You're certainly welcome to do that. Uh, but I hope, uh, hope you enjoyed that. I hope it helps you with your dreams tonight. So... Um, just a little bit more for us and uh, we're going to talk about uh, women's orgasms and then we're going to call it a day uh, but I will be back with you Wednesday uh, because I have a great show. Uh, We're going to be talking about um, the dangers of dominionist Christianity in groups like Opus Dei. Uh, Yeah, I have a a uh, theologian that's going to be on the show, and we're going to talk about the seven mountains of dominionist Christianity. And, you know, they believe they want to take over the United States and turn it into, um, you know, a, uh, a, a theological state. You know, no freedom of religion uh, anymore. You know, they don't believe what is going on in the world um, is a good thing. You know, they want to take us back. Reminds me of The Handmaid's Tale. Um, Anyway, that's for another day. 
so uh, this is about uh, female orgasms. We're going to turn our attention to that. And um, as I said at the top of the show, uh, there was an article in Live Science in the um, the author was Isabel Whitcomb, and the title was uh, Why Do Women Have Orgasms? So I'm going to share this with you and then um, some comments uh, from a friend of mine that I thought were very astute. She gave me permission to share, um, share with, with listeners on the show. So why do women have orgasms? Hint, they're for more than just making babies. <laughs> Uh, the reason for the female orgasm has long eluded scientists. Men, of course, need them for reproduction. Women don't. So why do female orgasms exist? Scientists studying the issue are divided, said David Putz, a Putz, David Putz, not Putz, said David Putz, a biological anthropologist at Penn State University. Some scientists think female orgasms are totally purposeless. Uh, but evidence suggests that they may have once helped and perhaps still help us survive and reproduce. One theory holds that women have orgasms because men have them, said Kimberly Russell, an ecologist at Rutgers University in New Jersey. Some researchers argue that female orgasms exist because as fetuses, we all start out with the same basic parts regardless of sex. Orgasms in women, like nipples on men, just happen to stick around. It might be an anatomical bonus, uh, she told Live Science. Uh, in this scenario, the orgasm didn't evolve specifically for me females, and it might not serve a specific evolutionary, oh, but it might serve, it, it might not serve a specific evolutionary function for them. But there's a problem with the argument that orgasms have no function, said Patricia Brennan, an evolutionary biologist at Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts. It's not adaptive for our bodies to devote too much energy to traits like nipples that aren't beneficial. These traits tend to disappear or become less pronounced over time. That's far from the case for female orgasms, she said. According to the Kinsey Institute, female orgasms tend to last longer than male orgasms and can occur multiple times in a row, something that's rare in men. In other words, female orgasms use a lot of energy for a trait that supposedly has no function, she said. Plus, there's nothing diminished about the anatomical structures involved in the female orgasm. The clitoris, a highly sensitive part of the female genitals that has a key role in orgasm, is, hem uh, is, is likened to the penis. Like male and female nipples, they grow from the same anatomical structure, but contrary to popular belief, a clitoris is not just a mini penis. The human clitoris has structures that are incredibly well-developed, says Brennan. Uh, she goes on to say, to me, that screams selection. There are multiple theories about how exactly the female orgasm helped our ancestors pass on their genes. Although women don't need to have an orgasm to conceive, some research suggests that wasn't always the case. Many female ma mammals, including rabbits and cats, ovulate only when they mate. Based on an analysis of how traits have been passed down through the tree of life, one study published in the Journal of Experimental Zoology found that our female ancestors probably needed orgasms in order to reproduce. But again, this theory doesn't explain why orgasms stuck around in women. 
Brennan says, if orgasms evolved for some adaptive reason, but they're no longer adaptive, they should have disappeared, and clearly they haven't gone away. Some research suggests that orgasms still create the perfect condition for con conception, even if they're not necessary to ovulate. One study found that women who had orgasms close to when their male partner did actually upsucked more the Okay, let me start that one again. One study found that women who had orgasms close to when their male partner did actually upsucked more sperm into their bodies compared with women who had orgasms much earlier or later than their partner. Scientists have even tried to draw correlations between the number of orgasms a woman has and the number of children she has. But evidence for these hypotheses is shaky and doesn't draw a direct casual link between orgasms and conception. Plus, these theories leave a major question unanswered. What if the orgasm has nothing to do with reproduction? What if instead it evolved only for pleasure? Sex doesn't have to feel good for reproduction to take place, Russell said. We know this from looking at animals. Sex can be very uncomfortable and it still gets done. But culturally, the idea that sex might be for more than just babies is somewhat of a taboo subject. Tell me about it. Sex that feels good for both males and females has an important social role, Russell said. It relieves stress and helps partners bond. Ancestral humans might have engaged in sex to create more cohesive groups, to smooth over conflict, and to cement social networks. We see these behaviors in other primates like bonobos who might use sex to help dispel a fight over a nasty piece of, over a tasty piece of fruit or even a clan rivalry. It follows from this argument that evolutionarily, female orgasms might have acted as a kind of social glue. <clears throat> that pleasure alone is enough to make a trait adaptive goes against popular conceptions of why sex and orgasms exist. But for Brennan, it makes perfect sense to experience pleasure that seems evolutionarily like a good idea, she said. Okay, so I certainly agree with the end of that article. Um, you, you know, it could be a social glue, a social glue that makes total sense. Now here I want to share with you what my friend said uh, about uh, female orgasms. She says, um, thank you for sharing this with your listeners. It's really important and very interesting. I'm glad someone is tackling, uh, I, I, and I only hope uh, that they get more research and really understand it. However, it is my belief that there is a section of society at the highest levels that I believe understands full well why orgasms are not only possible but very important. And for a female to have them and understand them uh, is incredibly, oh, wait a minute, uh, oh, shoot, you know what, um, I am not going to be able to finish reading this because the way it printed, I'm missing some of the words, um, I, but I'm going to do my best here because um, I think we might be able to get through to it. Um, hmm. 
Okay. You know what? I am going to go ahead and play a little bit of music, and I am going to find where her email was, and I'm going to read it straight off the computer because she has something important to say here. So uh, give me a little minute here. I'm going to play um, a little bit more of Reclaiming's uh, music. This time we're going to uh, let you hear Rising of the Moon, and that will give me a minute or two to find this email so I can tell you what my friend was going to share about orgasms because I, I think it's really worth hearing. Uh, so stick around with me, okay? Hang on.
Okay, I'm back. And I did find her email, uh, and I'm going to share with you what she said about orgasms because she's very bright and terribly astute. And uh, it's one of these feminist things that I think we need to hear. So anyway, here she says, uh, again, thank you for sharing. I think this is important. Um, However, it is my belief that there is a section of society at the highest levels that I believe understands full well why female orgasms are not only possible but very important. And for a female to have them and understand them is incredibly threatened to the unbalanced male-dominant social structure they created. A biologist I knew was pretty much blacklisted because she started to study the effects of female orgasms in males, namely their partners of the women. Uh, When a man is able to bring a woman to orgasm, a cascade of hormones and other biochemical substances very beneficial is triggered. A sense of joy, pride, and a calming effect occurs. Indeed, it seems to forge a bond between the partners reminiscent of the yin-yang whole description in ancient texts. The male-female partnership ensues, and soon... um, Oh, and soon her place at the decision table is inevitable. It is a psychological partnership primer. Men seem to naturally respond in a much less authoritative way and to value much higher a woman whom they can bring to orgasm, a much lesser tendency to abuse her or regard her as valueless happens. Social conditioning seems to create a kind of uncomfortable cognitive dissonance as biologically he is less inclined to abuse and more likely to value. Interestingly, in societies where female orgasms are more prevalent, women have achieved more freedom, more status, and less abuse in spite of social conditioning designed to preclude it. That's because her research found that in couples that shared a fulfilling long-term sexual partnership with many orgasms for both, the brain is rewired and synchronous between the partners. When a woman is able to reach orgasm along with her partner, the bond that forges out of such an experience is very powerful. It brings about a balance. It affirms partnership and cooperation in the relationship. It belays the idea of her existence for the purpose of serving and satisfying a man. The reciprocal nature of a relationship, which entails female orgasms, is definitely a threat to the established order. To me, this clearly explains the violent condemnation and the genital mutilation that has become so rooted in so many parts of the world. The current male-dominated structure is unnatural and actually mutual consenting. Reciprocal orgasmic sex has the biological ability to vanquish it and restore the natural balance which is the partnership structure. The current male-dominant model is actually detrimental to men, too, as their feminine aspects and attributes are truncated and a wholeness only achieved through the full female complement is denied them as well. Also explains the Abrahamic traditions and other patriarchs models, violent attack on pre-Christian traditions. Many of them explain this very clearly in their scriptures and philosophies. Along with meditation and other practices which could open up a cosmic connection and a more balanced understanding of the universe, the knowledge still available in those traditions is very much a threat to the male-dominant power structure. 
end for most scientists to claim ignorance is either indicative of the brokenness and the bias of our learning institutions and a cover-up of a magnitude. So I think you kind of get the gist. Um, you know, if we had this, um, this type of bonding through orgasm, um, you know, would the world be such a violent place? Would there be inequality? Or would there really be the egalitarian societies of old, like we think maybe happened in Minoan Crete, for instance, uh, where men and women were equals and lived in harmony and beauty um, instead of uh, what we have today where domestic violence is epidemic and, um, you know, all the other things that uh, women suffer uh, in today's world of patriarchy. So anyway, uh, some real food for thought about uh, female orgasms. Um, maybe why they're diminished um, and um, why they shouldn't be diminished. Okay, so um, I hope you enjoyed today's show and uh, that uh, will bring it to a close. I want to thank my friend who prefers to remain anonymous uh, uh, but you know, sent in that, uh, that writing and um, want to thank the Reweaving uh, and Reclaiming folks uh, for their lovely music. Also, don't forget uh, Catherine Veritas's book, The Maltese Dreamer, if you're looking for a novel about Malta and priestesses and healers and shamanic practice. And it's a love story, too. Um, and please do, um, you know, uh, take a look at my book, Goddess Calling. Um, I in invite you every month to enjoy what I will share with you from the book. Uh, but if you uh, go out there and get your own book, you can make your own uh, recorded uh, guided meditations uh, if you like. Uh, but uh, if you don't, that's okay too. You can enjoy them here. All right, that does it for me today. Um, uh, but please uh, be back on Wednesday, and we'll be talking about the Opus Day and Dominionist Christianity. Uh, thank you, dear listeners. Uh, you are the guests in my tank. Bye for now.